I'm just going to quick introduce myself. I am uh, Bronwyn Nieser. I'm the current postdoctoral fellow in forensic psychology at the University of New Mexico. Um, so although I'm now sort of in the forensic realm, um, a huge portion of what I did in graduate school was look at um, kids and juveniles and sort of their development and what that what that means for clinical, but um, also sort of like treatment recommendations and all of that. So I have, um, although I'm not currently working with juveniles, I have a pretty um, pretty good grasp on what what all of that looks like and have worked with kids for quite some time. Um, I don't have any conflicts of interest. I'm not getting paid to do this. I'm actually really excited to donate my time to do this. This is great. Um, and everything that I'm presenting are my views. They um, are not through New Mex the University of New Mexico. So don't go running to them and asking them all a bunch of questions because uh, they will be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I thought I would just put in some learning objectives for us today. Um, so the three main areas that I'm going to be touching on today, and then I'm also coming back at the end of the month. So just as like a, uh, a warning, I guess, maybe not, not to like scare anyone away, but I'm hoping that we can have some pretty good discussion at the end of this. So this isn't going to be a super huge, long presentation. Um, because I'm really hoping to get some feedback from you all about, you know, your work with juveniles, what that's looked like, what you feel like is going really well, where you feel like you need more support, what information you feel like you would like to have, um, and, and just to have kind of a conversation about that. So today I'm going to be basically giving a really rough, broad brushstroke of development of also childhood trauma and then some behavior that we might see that may impact um, your jobs and I know impacts my job as a psychologist. Okay, so to start, um, to start, I think when I first started working with kids, um, I saw, you know, you see a whole range, right? Um, you see kids who, you know, you would say are wise beyond their years, and they seem like really able to have adult conversations and um, they're a joy to be around. And then you have some kiddos that might have some learning disabilities who are the same age as the kid next to them who was a joy to be around. And you're like, I don't know how to communicate. Um, so I think what's really important and what's been really impactful for me in my work with kids is to sort of manage my expectations. And that comes from having a good grasp around like what's developmentally appropriate. Like, if all things were to be in perfect order, like if we were all to, you know, grow up and have everything that we needed and, um, you know, didn't, didn't have anything that impeded our ability to develop normally or averagely or typically, right? We, we would see this type of decision-making. And I decided to focus on decision-making because I feel like that's what you guys are dealing with in the field. You're dealing with kids who are in that moment making some decisions. Um, and so having an idea about what that typical decision-making development looks like, right? So I started real young, just to give you guys an idea. I know that you probably work more in the age ranges of like six to 19, and then also early adulthood, right? Which I'll touch on. But at age three, also, I mean, I would assume that most of you know some kids, right? And so this is, this comes to like no surprise. So 
At age three, it's a very me-centered decision, right? So you're going to see the kid who pulls the toy out of another kid's hand, not because they don't like that kid, not because they're a bully, um, but because they think that that toy is super cool and they want to look at it. Um, so it's very focused on like my needs and what I need right now. So that's like age three. Age four is where you start to see social reasons or personal preferences coming into place, right? So you have kids who are able to say like, I hate peas, um, I love broccoli, right? So like you're starting to see some of that. And then you're also starting to see those like social bonds coming out, you know, like, well, Jenny wears pink, so I wanna wear pink, um, you know, as like that social type of, of decision-making process. Also to note, right, we're progressing, right? We're adding on to the thing that we were already learning how to do. So age five to six, now we're aware of the effect of our decisions on other people, right? So we're doing more of a conscious decision-making process. Like Jenny has the, this really cool toy that I wanna look at, but if I take the toy from Jenny out of Jenny's hand, she's gonna be really upset. So I'm gonna ask Jenny if I can see the toy, right? So. So that sort of decision-making is starting to happen between five and six, although probably not as graceful as that, right? But that's the idea. So ages six to 12, we're looking at more of a concrete operational skills um, and concrete decision-making, right? So if this happens, then this happens. Um, so instead of seeing like a decision tree of like, here's the choice I wanna make and here are all of the different outcomes that could happen, you're seeing, if I want this, then if I do this, then this will happen. Well, it's just a, it's a one-way street. Um, and so there's very limited ability to comprehend that if I do this, then actually like four things could happen and I might achieve my goal and I might not. Um, we start seeing more of that in the age range of 12 to 18. So more abstract thinking skills, more reasoning, more process, like, oh, if I, you know, <clears throat> if I'm aggressive towards a police officer, like, that's probably not going to end in my favor. Um, or if I, you know, yell at my teacher in class, that likely will result in detention. Um, and I might get my other friend in trouble because he might come to my rescue or, you know, wh whatever might happen, right? So you're seeing more of like this abstract. That's if development were to happen in the totally typical way that it, it, it should, right? If, if all the stars align, if everything's super great, that's, that's typically what we would see in decision. However, we have to take into consideration atypical development. So that's, you're gonna start seeing that when you see kids who um, have a learning disability, kids who are on the autism spectrum scale, kids who, um, Parent, whose parents used um, illicit drugs prenatally, kids who have fetal alcohol syndrome, um, kids with other neurocognitive disorders, um, a, 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 range of, a range of things can impede development, right? And so at that point, stuff starts to happen differently. And you see um, sort of some impairment within sort of the social emotional aspects of decision-making, right? So you're going to see kids who don't really include others. So at that age four range, right, when social pieces are, are supposed to start impacting that decision making, you might not see any of that. 
Um, it might stay me-centered for, for longer than might be anticipated. Um, there might be more, a wider range of emotions expressed um, and difficulty with regulating those emotions that are being expressed. Um, instead of feeling sort of sad, um, you feel incredibly hopeless, right? So seeing some of those areas. Language and communication can be impaired. So maybe not always being able to convey information appropriately. Um, so you're gonna see like kids who interrupt people, you're gonna see kids who yell out answers, um, you're gonna see kids who might just um, derail conversations uh, because the topic isn't of interest to them. And then cognitively, you're gonna see a lot of difficulty in following commands, especially commands that go over three. So if you're asking a kid to sit down, tie your shoes and put your coat on, right? That's three commands, but you're giving it to them all at once. Um, so if you think about how you're uh, encountering youth in the community, you know, how many commands are you giving to youth um, and how many commands can they realistically handle at one time? Um, difficulty with memory and attention. So it might be really hard for kids to sit and hear a whole bunch of information, kind of like what I'm doing to you right now, which, so I don't blame you all if this is very challenging. <laughs> um, and then also just um, more of that concrete, right? So like a black and white picture with a really hard time sort of analyzing a situation from an entire 360 view. So that's atypical. So what are some of the things that can impact or derail that development. Um, a ton, and I'm sure that you all are aware of ACEs. Um, this study has been going on for, oh gosh, I mean, really long time. We're finally starting to look into um, the impact. I mean, it started right as like health outcomes. So like for obesity, um, actually I think it was just, just obesity and then um, smoking cessation. We're finally starting to see research into sort of what we're seeing with juveniles who have high ACE scores. So adverse childhood events, which includes physical, emotional, sexual abuse, neglect, um, both physical and emotional neglect, uh, household dysfunction. So if your parents have spent time in prison, if your parents are divorced. Um, so thinking about all of these things, you have, if you have parents who have an addiction, um, what does that look like for kids? So if you have kids who can check off a bunch of these boxes, let's say four or more, um, you're gonna start seeing some different behaviors. So behavioral outcomes that they found through ACEs studies in juveniles is that if you have four or more ACEs, you are more likely to exhibit externalizing and internalizing behaviors. Externalizing being sort of that physical output of that energy. So bullying, physical aggression, theft, vandalism, whereas internal, um, internalizing behaviors is more of that like self-harming, um, self-mutilation, self-damaging behavior. You see an increase in ADHD diagnoses in these kiddos, um, an increase in early alcohol and marijuana use, an increase in violent behaviors, and an increase in arrest. To pile on top of all of that, we're all, we, what the research also shows is that um, Black and African-American kids, Hispanic kids, Native American kids all have an increased risk of negative health, health outcomes, as well as an increased risk of higher ACE scores. 
What that means is that we're going to see a higher level of those kiddos exhibiting larger behaviors that all can be tied back to these adverse childhood experiences and largely to racial inequalities. Okay, so why, why should we talk about this? Like, why is this important for us to keep in mind? Why is this what I'm talking about today? Why do I bring it to you? Um, why do you care? Uh, that's a good question. I thought about that a lot before I was coming here today and when I was putting this together. And what I came up with was there, this link between trauma and behavior, right? What we're seeing, what we deal with is the behavior. And what, what, what might help us in dealing with that behavior is thinking about what may be going on for this kid that is producing these behaviors. So trauma is when you're in a trauma loop or when you are um, triggered and you're in sort of like that trauma brain, uh, what us, I guess, trauma psychologists say in the field is we are all doing the best we can with what we have. And just remembering that each of us in this moment is doing the best that we can with what we have. Um, with what we have is the most important and key factor in that, right? So typically we are all trying to meet needs. Every day we have needs that we're trying to meet. Um, so, you know, I don't know, I know that I just heard um, uh, an ESPN notification on a phone. So whoever is playing fantasy football currently, um, the need might be that you have to design your line and you're getting a no notification from ESPN that just told you that your line is now screwed um, and Super Bowl Sunday is coming up, right? So the need is I need to turn my screen off right now and deal with what's happening with my fantasy football team. Um, <clears throat> yes, absolutely, right? So when we think about kids, it's like, okay, so what's the need? If I have a need for social belonging and I don't have any support and I don't know how to do any of that, I might find myself more susceptible to gang involvement because now I have this family structure, this social structure that might provide that for me. Is that an adaptive way to find social belonging? Like, are there other adaptive ways? Yes, of course. I could join the basketball team or I could, um, I could join, um, you know, the bowling league or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, a gang might not be the most adaptive thing. But if that's the neighborhood that you grow up in, if that's what's immediately available to you and you know someone who's already done it, the likelihood of you making that choice has just increased. Similarly, we all need to eat. Like I'm thinking about lunch right now. It's gonna be a late lunch, that's gonna ruin my dinner. So now I'm thinking about all of these things. However, if I don't have food and I haven't had food for a really long time and I don't know how to get food because I don't have an income, I might decide that like that corner store looks real good and that Snickers bar looks even better. And I might just be taking that Snickers bar because I haven't eaten in three days. So you might see a higher level of theft. Um, all of these, right? So when you think about the behavior that you're seeing, right? So I just stopped this kid for a speeding violation. Okay, well, how many other kids are in the car with that person, right? We know that you know, you get four teenagers in a car and you're going to see a decrease in that driving ability versus one teenager in a car driving from point A to point B. Um, you know, is this kid meeting a food insecurity need, you know, going and stealing a loaf of bread or stealing a bunch of candy bars? Or is it just that he got put up to it by his peer group? Um, 
you know, we look at truancy. Um, does this kid have an undiagnosed learning disability that makes class really, really hard for him? And it's really frustrating and he has no support at home for homework. So why the hell would I participate in school? I might as well go and hang out with my friends out here. That's way better for me. Um, and so you're also losing out on, you know, what the supportive and protective factors of school is, right? So thinking about, I, I guess like this, this is like the big push of let's think about Let's look at the behavior and then be really open-minded to like, what might be happening? Like what behavior is this? How is this meeting a need? Like what need is being met through this behavior? So additionally, nationally, and I'm sure that this is something that you all talk about is just that um, juveniles in general, and I don't know why this is. So maybe this is another piece that we can talk about in the discussion, but Typically on a national scale, juveniles say that they have more negative attitudes towards police officers than adults do. I have my own sort of suspicions that that's a developmental thing. Um, definitely in adolescence, you're looking at that push on authority because you are seeking independence, right? You're seeking autonomy. And so in adolescence, you're gonna see more of that push against authority. So that's my own like, hypothesis behind that. But just to note, um, that's, that's super important to be aware of, right? Like if, if there's a need that's being met with this maladaptive behavior and you're the person that's intercepting that, you know, what, what do you feel like you need in order to be the most supportive person so that we're looking more towards a corrective and a more sort of like I don't want, I don't want to say therapeutic, but less of a punishment and more of a corrective action, right? Like, and not only that, but now you just have this experience with me and you know that like, I'm a contact person. Like if you had questions or if you're concerned about something or, you know, whatever that might be as, um, as police officers, a huge portion of that, I feel like with the juvenile population is sort of building that mentorship, building that community awareness and presence. I could be totally wrong. You can correct me when we go to discussion. Um, so youth police encounters, right, are there's like four main categories, uh, which is youth initiated, police initiated, contact resulting in arrest, and then contact due to victimization. Um, I put this up. I know that you're all aware of this. I think for me, the biggest piece of this was this last one, contact due to victimization. So the number is quite staggering for me, um, and 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 I don't know. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know what's happening in the world that this is true. I come from Minneapolis, and I know um, we had an increase in youth gang involvement that was specifically random violent crimes, um, and it was it was wild in downtown Minneapolis for a portion of. Um, I guess it was like two summers ago, leading into the winter of 2019. Um, but one in four victims of serious violent crimes known to law enforcement are juveniles. One in four. One in four kids is involved in a serious violent crime or is a victim of a serious violent crime. Um, that's super scary. Like, that's a huge number. Um, so also being that contact point person in the community of like, you know, having that awareness, having youth know that they can come to you, having, um, building those relationships in the communities, I think is incredibly important. And I have no idea how 
or you know what what is the best practice for doing that. Um, but I'm definitely here to support you all in in whatever way that I can. So this is just like super brief. Um, if this is something that you're interested in me talking more about, I can definitely do that in my next presentation. So we can sort of think about that. The big thing that I want to say about de-escalation with juveniles, de-escalation with kids in general, is that is this. If this is like one thing that you take away, is that kids when they're activated, they go into their um, their left side of the brain. I might be getting that wrong. I get my lefts and rights confused all the time. They go into their emotion side of the brain and that's where they live. And that's where it's fight or flight. That's where they fight, flight, freeze. Like that's where they start making decisions. And that's where you're going to see really impulsive behaviors. That's where you're going to see some more uh, like self-preservation and erratic behaviors. They are not communicating with their other side of the brain. There's no communication with their logic and reasoning, which is um, you know, I'm not safe. If I continue, I still won't be safe. Bad things will happen. Um, or if I run, this is, you know, I'm smaller and they have a vehicle and there's no way, or, um, to detective Padilla's point, um, if I drive this car really, really fast down the highway, I'll get away. Um, like you're not seeing any of that logic and reasoning. So for de-escalation with youth in general, it's, how do you bring that connection together, right? Like how, how do you make the whole brain talk to each other, right? So that a lot of times involves us acknowledging that you're in that emotion place, acknowledging like, hey man, I know you're super scared. I know you just got into this really bad accident. I know things with your dad are not okay. And you've tried to express that a lot. And I, and I hear you. So validation, and then can we maybe think of some ways to start, you know, can we maybe think of some ways for us to have a conversation about what's going on? Take your time, like if you need a minute. So you're starting to slowly bring in that logic reasoning by offering smaller choices, right? Like, um, you know, do you feel like you just need five minutes and then we can talk about it? Would you like you know, your mom to be here while we talk about it? Um, to sort of link them back to the present moment of now I have to make some choices and I need, I need these things to be together and I'm okay to do that. I'm okay to sit here and say, I need to talk through this. You're gonna arrest me, right? So like that is likely the fear. You're going to arrest me. If I don't run away, you will arrest me. That's great because then, then you have that opportunity of providing some more of that and turning on that other side of the brain of, and this could happen and this could happen. You know, a lot of things could happen. Let's talk about it. So that's, that's just like a little nugget. Um, I can definitely talk about that more. And um, so success and growth. I'm going to throw these up here and then I'm going to stop screen sharing. Um, just going back to, I want to know, What's worked? Share some of your successes of working with juveniles. Like, what do you like about it? What's, you know, what goes really well? And then also, you know, maybe some feedback around where you feel like you need some more support. What's missing? Are there gaps in the system um, that would be important to talk about? And then um, just if you want, this is my contact information. I can put it up um, in the comment box or I can, you know, show this slide again. But 
Um, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, hopes, dreams, desires, please share them with me.